In the big building of the law courts, during a break in hearing the case of Melvinsky's, the members and prosecutor met in Ivan Yegorovich Shehek's office, and the conversation turned to the famous Krasovsky case. Fyodor Vasilievich became heated, demonstrating non-jurisdiction. Ivan Yegorovich stood his ground. As for Pyotr Ivanovich, not having entered into the argument in the beginning, he took no part in it and was looking through the just-delivered newspaper. Gentlemen, he said, Ivan Ilyich is dead. This is the After Dinner Scholar podcast from Wyoming Catholic College, and I'm your host, Dr. Jim Tonkowicz. Those words are the beginning of Leo Tolstoy's 1886 novella, The Death of Ivan Ilyich, the first reading for the 2022 Wyoming School of Catholic Thought. It's intriguing that the story begins with Ivan Ilyich's death, recounting his life and his dying as a flashback after we hear about his funeral. At the Wyoming School of Catholic Thought, Wyoming Catholic College President Dr. Glenn Arbery introduced Tolstoy's novella this way. Uh, this story is part of the great, um, great burst of Russian literature in the 19th century, as I think all of you know. Um, you know, you had Pushkin, you had Gogol, you had uh, Dostoevsky, Turgenev, uh, Tolstoy. And this story by Tolstoy comes in, I think, was published in 1886. He had published uh, War and Peace in the 1860s, same decade as, as um, Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment. And Tolstoy's great novel, Anna Karenina, was about, uh, I think, 1878, so some eight years or so before this one. Um, Tolstoy obviously has something in mind with this story. Um, it's not simply a narrative of, you know, of, of uh, events, but it has it has a kind of intensity of direction uh, toward the audience that I think we're going to need to think about uh, considerably. This is one of the most harrowing stories I think I've ever read. Um, when my wife and I were driving down to Denver a couple of weeks ago and listening to this, you know, uh, as you get toward those last chapters, and we're pulling into the city, you know. <laughs> driving through the traffic, you know, and you know the the intensity of what uh, Ivan Illich is going through in those last days of his life is it, it scours you, you know. It it really goes through every emotion and takes you into into the depths of 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 what what he's undergoing. You see a man who is in constant despair. He can't understand why this is happening to him. Uh, he's in pain. Remember the, that, that whole chapter where the it, you know, keeps confronting him. This other thing that uh, his death is keeps confronting him. Um, he can't understand uh, why nobody else will acknowledge the fact that he's dying. There's this sense of falsity and hypocrisy in everybody around him. Um, and he descends by the end of the story into this utter loneliness. You know, um, even Garrison sort of drops out of the story toward the end. And, you know, it's just Ivan Illich with, with his suffering. And it's, you know, uh, 
it's it's terrifying. It's you know it, it just kind of goes through every emotion that you're pretty sure you would have and and works works through it. So uh, what kind of story is this? <clears throat> Do we think of this? Um, I guess novella as as a tragedy. <sighs> uh, no, right? It's not a tragedy. Do you understand why I say that? You know, if you're thinking of the great tragic heroes, um, you know, who make some mistake in judgment or, you know, do something that leads to uh, consequences, you don't think of that in terms of bumping your side against, <laughs> you know, when you're hanging the curtains. That, no, that doesn't qualify, you know, as, as a kind of tragic act. Um, it's terrible, right? It leads us into all these emotions. But I don't think there's ever a point where we think of Ivan Illich as a hero of any sort. Um, he, he's not above the common grade. In fact, if there's anything about him that I think we see very clearly is that he's very good at being ordinary. You know, he's sort of, what, upper ordinary, you know? <laughs> Um, he he's understands himself in terms of what other people do, as I'll get into a little bit more in just a minute. Um, but he's living very clearly from the beginning of what we see of him in this kind of fiction of, of ordinary success, you know, what, what people do, what they admire. And, um, you know, he thinks about things in terms of those who are higher than he is socially and what they do, but there's never a point where you see Ivan Illich do something, um, you know, brave, you know, going against the grain, anything like that. That's, that's simply not who he is. Um, he has a discerning shallowness, you could say. Um, <laughs> you know, he, he sees what people think is the good thing and he does that. Um, and he enjoys power, you know, those disconcerting sentences about how he could just put anybody in jail or something like that, you know, ruin anyone. Um, that's the kind of meditation that makes you a little uncomfortable. But he enjoys a kind of insulated professionalism, you know. Uh, he's, he's capable of being in circumstances of great human stress without getting into it personally, right? He, he doesn't commit himself um, to, to anyone. And he sees this, as you remember, when the doctors come in to talk to him. He sees exactly the same kind of attitude on their part. So maybe we should ask if this story is comic. It starts off as, exactly, it starts off, the first chapter is, you know, sort of overtly comic. Right. Oh, this is going to be, uh, this, this gonna be the, the comedy of the death of Ivan Illich, right? Uh, Peter Ivanovich, you know, coming in, he finds out about the death of his colleague at work and realizes, oh, man, I have to go to the funeral, I guess, you know? I have to go put in my appearance. All, all this is part of, you know, the, uh, what's expected of you on, on that social plane. But then, you know, he he's has to... <laughs> pretend to be sad, 
as uh, Praskovia Fedorovna is also pretending to be sad. And you get that wonderful conversation <laughs> when, when he's sitting on that rebellious poof <laughs> and the spring keeps bouncing up, you know, and, and he has to detach her lace and so on, and, and, and it all kind of cools his emotions, as you remember. But all of that, you know, it's sort of wonderfully comic, the whole first scene. And, you know, sort of comedy of manners, and it seems like the whole point of the first chapter is, you know, how to get to the bridge game despite the, you know, indiscretion of your colleague in dying, you know. Um, so is there something to the whole shape of the story that we should be thinking about as comic? Um, I don't know if that first, I mean, you know, obviously there's a lot of irony, you know, being set up in that first chapter, but is it um, that the whole of it is, is given its tone by that? Uh, it doesn't feel right, right? It feels, it feels like um, more satirical. Um, it feels like there's a um, shift in tone that starts out almost immediately with the beginning of the second chapter, right? In fact, if you'll look on page 12, uh, right at the beginning of the second chapter, Ivan Illich's life had been most simple and most ordinary and therefore most terrible. Um, I'm going to ask a question about that in, in just a minute. But, you know, as we're thinking about the, the whole shape of this story, is there an upward movement in it? You know, I mean, you think, you think about things that are um, described as comedies, like Dante's Inferno, beginning of the Divine Comedy. Why is that comic? Well, I mean, it, it you know, involves, you know, the descent of Dante through hell and then, you know, and seeing sin laid out in all its manifestations, and then at the very end of it, there's, there's an upward turn, you know, uh, which constitutes in a, in a real way, right, what, what the comedy is going to be, this, this sort of movement, um, ultimately the movement upward. There, is there a way in which this whole story is uh, kind of playing off the allegory of the cave in, the, in Plato's Republic? where you come out of a realm of shadows and opinions, you know, into, into the light of, of the reality of things. Uh, it seems like something like that is going on with Ivan Illich. Um, he's, he's seeing that everything that he's thought was the case is actually false, right? Um, and so right at the end of the story, you know, he breaks through, he sees, um, the, the real for what it is. So is, that, is there something about that that's um, comic? Um, maybe, uh, but it still, it doesn't, thank you, <laughs> more and more, right? Uh, through most of it, it doesn't feel comic. It feels um, satirical in the beginning, and then, you know, it, we're gonna have to kind of talk out later. What it is we see is going on in these, in these, um, in, in the majority of the text. One question we might want to ask, if you look back at page twelve, 
is why the story doesn't start here, right? Why doesn't it start, Ivan Illich's life had been most simple and most ordinary and therefore most terrible, right? What would be the difference if you took this as the beginning of the story and put the first chapter at the end, right, where it would seem naturally to come since it follows the death of Ivan Illich. Um, but when you imagine doing that, right, it changes, changes the whole way I think you experience the story, right? So that's, I guess, another thing we want to ponder. So what this beginning in chapter two does is to pose a question to us, which is what's so terrible about being simple and ordinary? Garrison is simple and ordinary. You know, you wouldn't say anything else about him except that he's simple and ordinary. But you wouldn't say that was terrible. So what is it in saying it about Ivan Illich that, that makes it so terrible? What's being satirized as terrible in this, in this novella? Is it uh, the hypocrisy of all of us? I mean, when we read this, I think, you know, you read it with a sense of, oh, oh, <laughs> you know, uh, there are all kinds of hypocrisies and things that uh, most of us indulge one way or another. Is it a certain social class, you know, that's being satirized here? Is it conventionality itself, inauthenticity? Um, back to page 12. I think you begin to see what it is that um, Tolstoy's after a little past mid-page when he's describing Ivan Illich's education. Um, he's always been this happy mean between his brother who's very stiff and the other one who's a ne'er-do-well and he just sort of gets it right. Um, he's, he's the the middle here, uh, just past, even when he was at the school of law, he was just what he remained for the rest of his life, a capable, cheerful, good-natured, and sociable man, though strict in the fulfillment of what he considered to be his duty. And he considered his duty to be what was so considered by those in authority. And, and what's you know, here's what your duty is. It's what's prescribed for you by those who have the authority to prescribe it. There's no, there's no questioning of what they say. Or, you know, it's just, well, they have the authority. They set the rules, and so I do what they say. Neither as a boy nor as a man was he a toady, but from early youth was by nature attracted to people of high station as a fly is drawn to the light, <laughs> assimilating their ways and views of life and establishing friendly relations with them. All the enthusiasms of childhood and youth passed without leaving much trace on him. He succumbed to sensuality, to vanity, and finally in the upper classes to liberalism, but always within limits which his instinct unfailingly indicated to him as correct. So a kind of correctness, right? A kind of intuition for finding where that range is of behavior and, and thought that it's gonna serve you well, right? As you, as you proceed in life. Um, 
he feels bad about some things he does as a young man. But later on, when he saw that such actions, the next paragraph, were done by people of good position <laughs> and that they didn't regard them as wrong, he was able not exactly to regard them as right, but to forget about them entirely or not be at all troubled at remembering them. So this, this seems pretty crucial, right, to the way that, that we understand the, the whole of, of the life of Ivan Illich. And it reminds me um, of the influence that Tolstoy had on the German philosopher Martin Heidegger, uh, who actually quotes this story in Being in Time. Um, and Heidegger, at one point in Being in Time, uh, talks about this kind of pervasiveness of a set of rules or expectations that aren't actually overt. They're never presented as George Washington did with rules of civility. You know, it's sort of a, you know, it's like these are the things that are expected of you in this station in your life. Um, but they're pervasive and inconspicuous. And Heidegger writes about this, he says, in this inconspicuousness, the they, the they, unfolds a true dictatorship. We enjoy ourselves and have fun the way they enjoy themselves. We read, see, and judge literature and art the way they see and judge. You see the point? The they, this you know, pervasive, nonspecific, you know, set of expectations that are being presented. And he goes on, we also withdraw from the great mass the way they withdraw. We find shocking what they find shocking. The they, which is nothing definite and which all are, prescribes the kind of being of everydayness. Now this word everydayness got into almost every senior thesis several years ago. <laughs> so I hesitate to even bring it up, but um, yeah, what it, this everydayness, this sense of you know, what the ordinary thing is every day and what that begins to prescribe for you. So I wonder if we might consider what's terrible you know, in, in that first sentence of the second chapter, to be this everydayness, you know, that the story is presenting to us. And the qualities of that everydayness, you know, for, for Ivan Illich have to do with that, you know, there's a phrase or something that gets repeated a good deal in the story, but everything being, you know, decorous and pleasant, right? There's sort of the pleasant way that things flow along proper, um, good-humored, right? This, this, is, this is the sort of life that you see uh, Ivan Illich leading, and it's, it's what's aimed at, right, with, with the whole society that, it, that he inhabits. Uh, the jocular tone at work, right? You know, the things that people say to each other, the way you kind of keep each other's spirits up, you don't face anything that's serious, you don't bring your issues. You see, I mean, it's sort of the, the way you maintain a, a certain level of um, pleasant discourse, you know, in the, in the wherever you are. Um, and Heidegger, again, in its being, the they is essentially concerned with averageness. 
this averageness which prescribes what can and may be ventured, watches over every exception which thrusts itself to the fore. Every priority is noiselessly squashed. Overnight, everything that's original is flattened down as something long since known. And, you know, he goes on to say that it's an essential tendency, this averageness, which levels down, you know, every possibility of being. Um, you think about averageness, look on page 18. You remember when Ivan Illich gets the house in Petersburg and he's decorating it, right? And he just thinks, oh man, this is the best, you know? And, and then Tolstoy <laughs> in that um, second full paragraph, in reality, it was just what is usually seen in the houses of people of moderate means who want to appear rich and therefore succeed only in resembling others like themselves. You know, um, so it's, you know, it's just like uh, everybody else's house, so like the others it would never have been noticed, but to him it all seemed to be quite exceptional. So the power in effect of, of the averageness, you know, it, it, it levels down, it makes everybody kind of see things in the, in the same way and, and think of themselves as, you know, as, as being, as affirming some kind of standard in the process. So this, this leveling down might be also what's, what's most terrible. I don't know if you kind of, when you're reading along through the story, do you hit a bump or two when you think, really? Um, I, I hit that bump when um, Ivan Illich has, has been married for a year or two, you know, and his wife starts to <laughs> be a little more demanding about things. Um, but then at the bottom of 15, After seven years' service in that town, see where I am, uh, about seven lines up from the bottom, he was transferred to another province as public prosecutor. They moved but were short of money, and his wife did not like the place they moved to. Though the salary was higher, the cost of living was greater, besides which two of their children died, and family life became even more unpleasant for him. You just—I uh, mean, serious. I mean, you, when you read right over that, and if you're thinking of it sort of from within the the framework of his main, you know, carefully maintained decorum and pleasantness, you see the point, right? That the deaths of children are really an inconvenience to you, but you know, to anyone else, you think, well, surely this is the most crushing and terrible thing that could happen to anyone, you know, to have your child die, to have two of them die, and to be thinking about, you know, the inconvenience of, of home life, how it's difficult to maintain that, um, that same kind of decorousness. Um, so he begins to increasingly separate himself from home and devote himself to work, right? And then at the right, at the end of that uh, chapter on, the, on page 16, just before chapter 3. So things continued for another seven years. His eldest daughter was already 16, another child had died, and only one son, you know, he just got, what? Right, 
but but you see you see the point. It's as though these things for Ivan Illich seem to be folded into the the whole uh, intent of his life, which is to maintain this kind of pleasant um, surface of decorousness. You know, playing bridge, all these things, and not to let uh, events like this uh, break in upon him. So. Uh, there doesn't seem on these occasions of what you would think would be heartbreaking loss. There doesn't seem to be any response on his part in terms of meaning, in terms of uh, deepening uh, of feeling. Um, so everything that, that's going on in his own agony, uh, you would think would have been touched on at least, right, in those earlier instances of losing his children didn't happen. So is that part of what is so terrible? You see what I'm saying? Um, would it break the surface of propriety to feel something so deeply, right, and to have it you know, break in upon that, that life of untroubled surface? All right, so another question. In this regard, are we supposed to be looking at Ivan Illich as a kind of everyman? Is this a kind of um, you know, morality play of sorts in which he's an everyman? Uh, which is to ask, how does the story affect us as readers? Are we the intended audience? You see what I'm asking? I mean, is it all of us in our conventionality and such that's the intended audience of this story? Or does Tolstoy have a more focused audience in mind? Um, are we people in the everyday world, you know, living our lives in, in everydayness, as opposed, say, to a community of Carmelite nuns who are reading Teresa of Avila every day? You see, you see what I'm saying? No. <laughs> All right. Um, let me see if I can get at it in just a minute. It's hard to read this story. I mean, when, when you start reading it, we're, we're invited into the person of, of Peter Ivanovich, right? So we kind of adopt his persona. We, you know, we go into the, um, the house of Preskovia Fedorovna. We see the, the corpse, you know, we try to figure out, should I make the sign of the... <laughs> Never a mistake to make the sign of the cross. You know? <laughs> bow, bow this way, you know. Um, but then we also enter into the persona of, of Ivan Illich once we, once we start to, to get his uh, perspective. So is all this directed to us? Um, as, you know, Ivan Illich is an everyman. And to, to ask that question... And sort of to ask what difference it makes what we believe. Let me see if I can get at that a little bit. Um, you remember back on page 12, when we were told about what was happening to him as a young man, there was this sentence, he succumbed to sensuality, to vanity, and finally in the upper classes to liberalism. What do you understand by liber liberalism? Liberalism. 
not, not as we understand it right now, but a certain way of thinking about, say, political institutions, political and individual freedom, let's say, um, and as somebody put it recently, material happiness. You know, not, it's not aimed at spiritual happiness, but certainly at material <laughs> happiness, you know, better state of living. Uh, as, who was it, Bacon talked about it in terms of the improvement of man's estate. So this is, this is what you're after with a certain understanding of liberalism. It also tends to be associated with enlightenment thought, with often the rejection of, you know, any kind of orthodox religion. And that's what I suspect we're looking at with, with Ivan Illich. For example, um, when he's sick and he's trying lots of different remedies, remember this is on page 23, <clears throat> he tries his medicines, they don't make him feel much better, he secretly does homeopathy for a week or two, um, and then he runs into this lady, this is three, three or four lines down on top of 23, one day a lady acquaintance mentioned a cure effected by a wonder-working icon. Ivan Illich caught himself listening attentively and beginning to believe that it had occurred. This incident alarmed him. Has my mind really weakened to such an extent? He asked himself. Nonsense. It's all rubbish. I mustn't give way to nervous fears, but having chosen a doctor must keep strictly to his treatment, and so on. So, I mean, he thinks about miraculous cures with an icon and catches himself, you know, almost believing it. Like, oh man, my mind's going if I believe anything like that. You see what I'm getting at? In other words, his, his liberalism, his kind of enlightenment views on things keep him from taking seriously anything having to do with, with traditional religion, with icons, um, things like that. So, uh, you, you might compare what Ivan Illich is like here to, to, you know, to Peter Ivanovich when he goes in. Aren't they, aren't they commenting on each other here in the story you follow? I mean, Ivan Illich's rejection of the whole idea of a wonder-working icon indicates that he and his circle of acquaintances reject sort of outright anything serious about the religion that they've inherited as part of their Russian tradition. Fair enough? You see what I mean? Okay, so when Peter Ivanovich goes into the room thinking he should, you know, crossing himself, probably a good idea, what is that saying? That he's going through the motions and he thinks these are the motions you're supposed to go through, but he doesn't have any real acquaintance with it, right? It's not, it's not a matter of any seriousness to him. He kind of bows toward the icons on the table in the corner. Aren't you supposed to do that? Bow? You know, but, you know, he, he really, he doesn't, it's not a living thing for him. Uh, and you never once in the story that I recall do you get any indication that Yvonne Illich or his family go to church or have, you know, much acquaintance with uh, matters of religion, in one, with one exception, which I'll get to in a minute. Um, so what does that say, right? Um, is, is, is that part of the they, you follow? Um, there's a, 
there's a kind of um, they of the of the liberal circles in which he in which he moves. Is there also a they of of religious people? You know, with their with their opinions. I mean, sort of when when Peter Ivanovich comes in and he's not sure what they expect you to do in a circumstance like this, it's like there's another they. I'm, I'm just confusing matters. But do you see what I'm getting at? Yeah. Okay. So. Um, I think as you take this in and realize sort of where he is personally in his own lack of belief, you see that there's no sense at any point in the story of, of the meaning of his suffering. He's suffering this, this terrible pain in his side. You know, it's killing him. He knows that it's killing him. But at no point is there some thought, as there might be, say, for Teresa of Avila, of participation in Christ's sufferings. You, you follow? You know, I mean, St. Paul is always talking about this. You know, you participate in the sufferings of Christ. You make up in your own person, you know, what's lacking in the sufferings of Christ, however we take that. Um, but, you know, the whole Catholic idea of offering it up, which was a surprise to me when I came into the church. Well, what? You know, but, but you, you know, offering up your suffering, making it part of, of what you do, um, never occurs to Ivan Illich. It's not even in, you see, it's not even in the world of the story that this kind of thought would occur to him. So what does that mean? He feels his coming death as this terrible, undue imposition, which reminds me of um, what uh, Jim was talking about last night, that passage from Rusty Reno, where you, he was talking about people who think they deserve for their, you know, to manage their death, manage their death and keep their bodily immortality if possible and so on. Um, all of that seems to characterize Ivan Illich, um, he can't think that he's done anything wrong, that, that there's something he should have done differently. Um, so at the top of page 38, just to point to this passage, first full paragraph, resistance is impossible, he said to himself. If I could only understand what it is all for, but that too is impossible. An explanation would be possible if it could be said that I have not lived as I ought to, but it is impossible to say that. And he remembered all the legality, correctitude, and propriety of his life. That, at any rate, can certainly not be admitted, he thought. And his lips smiled ironically, as if someone could see that smile and be taken in by it. There is no explanation. Agony, death, what for? So, you know, it's the, the state of someone who could possibly repent if he could convince himself that he had ever sinned. You know, but there's, there's no sense of sin. You follow? I mean, it's just, it's a world in which the idea of sin hardly even registers. There's incorrectness, there's impropriety, uh, things that might be um, out of that, 
that world of, of the smooth surface. But that's um, looking at a man who's thinking he, he did everything right. This is after he's had that moment, you know, when he, everything falls silent. Remember, he's talking to God, and he, he suddenly falls silent and hears something inside him. Um, but, and it precedes the passage that I want to bring up and then uh, end with, and then we'll go into our panel. This is on page 39. And as far as I know, I can't, I can't think of, a, of another example. Um, this is the only place where we actually encounter a kind of religious event, right? Um, Ivan Illich is despairing. He sees that he hasn't lived his, right, his life rightly, but he doesn't see anything he can do about it. So the, top of the first full paragraph on the page. If I'm leaving this life with the consciousness that I've lost all that was given me, and it's impossible to rectify it, what then? So again, this awful truth breaks in upon him. He sees the same thing in everybody who comes in to speak to him. His wife, his children, you know, his uh, potential son-in-law, their every word and movement confirmed to him the awful truth that had been revealed to him during the night. In them he saw himself, all that for which he had lived, and it realizes it's not real at all. There's nothing about it except the terrible and huge deception that's hidden both life and death. So this is sort of the worst of his despair. He's given a large dose of opium, you know, he lies there unconscious, and then when he comes out of it, his wife, Praskovia, comes in and says, Jean, dear, do this for me. You can't do any harm, and often helps. Healthy people often do it. So he's thinking. He opened his eyes wide. What? Oh, take communion. Why, it's, it's unnecessary. However, she began to cry. Yes, do, my dear. I'll send for our priest. He is such a nice man. All right, very well, he muttered. When the priest came and heard his confession, Ivan Illich was softened and seemed to feel a relief from his doubts and consequently from his sufferings. And for a moment, there came a ray of hope. He again began to think of the vermiform appendix and the possibility of correcting it. He received the sacrament with tears in his eyes. When they laid him down again afterwards, he felt a moment's ease and the hope that he might live awoke in him again. He began to think of the operation that had been suggested to him. To live. I want to live, he said to himself. His wife came in to congratulate him after his communion. And when uttering the usual conventional words, she added, you feel better, don't you? Without looking at her, he said, yes. Her dress, her figure, the expression of her face, the tone of her voice, all reveal the same thing. This is wrong. This is not as it should be. All you've lived for and still live for is falsehood and deception, hiding life and death from you. And then almost from this moment on, all right, for the next three days, he's continually screaming, 
right, in this agony of despair. So, um, how did you read this scene? You know, um, I hope when we, you know, get in, into the seminars in a bit, but maybe also just when we talk about it initially in the, in the panel, we can think, you know, what exactly are, are we being shown here? It feels like Prescovia is doing this because it's the thing you're supposed to do, right? You, you bring in the priest. Priest does not appear, unlike the doctors, right? We see the doctors occasionally. Um, we're not given a description of the priest. Doesn't appear as a character, simply is referred to. So what, is, what does that mean? Um, is the sacrament to be understood here at the beginning of these three days, which seem like they have a significance, right? As the unrecognized means of his salvation? Or is it leveled down? You know, is it just, is it just a convention, you follow? Um, the averageness, mere social expectation. Um, does Ivan believe in it? more than he believes in homeopathy. Does this moment lead to his eventual breakthrough? See, the, these, these are the questions it seems to me are embedded in this text, you know, for you to work through. Um, how do you understand, you know, what just happened? Is this just another conventional moment or is it something of, you know, of profound significance that, that has an effect in the, in the whole way that Ivan Illich's um, end comes about. So, I mean, to ask that question is to ask also whether this is a story about salvation through Christ, or is it a story about the confrontation with death as the way to a kind of authenticity of the self? I think, you know, there are some real arguments to be made on both sides. Um, I don't know if if Tolstoy, you know, thinks of those as being kind of the, the same thing in, in the story that he's telling. Um, there's obviously much more to say, much more to think about, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop there. I'm going to ask our faculty to come up. Let's have a brief discussion, and then we'll, we'll break in a bit and go into, into our seminars. Okay, thanks. During the seminar conversations about the death of Ivan Ilyich, participants in the program commented about Ivan Ilyich, his wife, and his colleagues. I know these people. We all do. What do we as Catholics say to them to rouse them from their spiritual and moral slumber? I believe we need to turn their attention and our own to the words of the preacher, Koheleth, in the Old Testament book, Ecclesiastes. Next week, that's precisely what we'll do. So let me encourage you to read Ecclesiastes this week. What would the writer of that book say to Ivan Ilyich and his friends? For Wyoming Catholic College, this is Dr. Jim Tonkowicz.